Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. How quickly we forgot. There was a time when watching COVID briefings and tracking infection numbers seemed like a national pastime. But then, the pubs and restaurants reopened. People ate out to help out. Town centres came back to life and the government told us as long as the R number was below one, we wouldn't need another lockdown. But now... UK's R number or rate of COVID-19 transmission has risen above one, meaning the coronavirus epidemic is growing. A study by Imperial College for the government estimated the R number could already be as high as 1.7, and coronavirus cases are thought to be doubling every week. Is this the second wave we've all been warned of? To the UK now, where coronavirus cases are soaring among young people. showed nearly 3,000 new infections. Real concerns about how fast these cases are rising. A big jump. The big question is, can we deal with this? As the threat of COVID looms large again, as of today, most of the country is learning to live with the rule of six. We're introducing the rule of six. You must not meet socially in groups of more than six. And if you do, you will be breaking the law. As your Prime Minister, I must do what is necessary to stop the spread of the virus and to save lives. This is Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, is the UK really heading for a second wave? Hello, I am Tom Whipple and I'm the science editor at The Times. And Tom, when did you start to worry that we might be on the cusp of a second wave? Was there a moment that made you think, oh, here we go? I guess the thing was we looked across at the continent who throughout this have been a few weeks ahead of us and we began to see these countries with often having quite sudden surges, just like we've seen with this. You know, in just a matter of few days, they would suddenly appear on the quarantine list and we'd say, oh, you can't go to that country. And of course, the same seems to be happening here and we might still quarantine ourselves. The official end of summer isn't until next week. But the reprieve much of the country had been granted from the virus came to a sudden end just over a week ago. On Sunday the 6th, the daily coronavirus case figures caused alarm across government. There was this sudden, and it really was sudden, alarming surge. The previous day, the figures had been a bit above 1,500 positive tests per day. And then suddenly it went up to 2,900. It seemed so unlikely, such a sudden shift after 
weeks, you know, six weeks of a very gradual daily increase. We'd gone from about 350 positive tests a day up until, you know, sort of 1800. And then, and then suddenly we had this jump. And I thought this must be some statistical anomaly. You know, is it that the tests have all been bunched up and we're just suddenly seeing a weekend effect where they're, they're processing more on one day? And I got in touch with quite a few scientists then to just say, you know, reassure me. And, and they didn't. Um, they, oh. <laughs> they, they said it was frightening. They said there was no particular reason to believe this didn't reflect a sudden increase. And indeed, in the days that came, it stayed high. It stayed just below 3,000 daily tests. And of course, the worry is, as with everything with the coronavirus, we're always playing catch up. These positive tests reflected tests taken a few days previous. And those tests themselves happened to people who were symptomatic, which meant that they caught the infection five, six days before then. So, you know, there's this dark period of a week or more when we don't know what's happening. And the real worry is that this thing's gone exponential again and there's this hidden surge that we're about to see in the next couple of days. Those fears have now been confirmed. With the R number, or the rate of infectivity, higher than one, we can expect the number of new coronavirus cases to rise exponentially. So what exactly does that mean? So exponentials catch us all out. It's not how humans are used to thinking. We're used to thinking about linear increases. This idea, oh, it's increased by 1,000 a day, it's increased by 500 a day, which is big. But the thing about exponentials is they beat all of that and they do so deceptively. There's a, a marvellous story about the guy who who invented the game of chess. An emperor loved it so much that he said, I'll give you any reward, what would you like? And he said, oh, I'd like a grain of rice on the first square of my chessboard. I'd like two grains of rice on the second square of my chessboard. I'd like four on the next, eight on the next. And the emperor thought this is mad. Obviously, he should have thought, well, this guy invented chess. He's probably a clever chap. And he said, oh, yeah, I'll send to that. And of course, by the time you get to the 64th square, there's more grains of rice than exist in the world. And that's what exponential growth is. Instead of increases in cases, you start talking about doubling time of cases. One of the things we hear is that, oh, well, this case rise just reflects increased testing. It absolutely doesn't. It's happened far too fast for it to just reflect increased testing or even better targeted testing. So it is a real thing. It is very low numbers still. But the worry is, as I say, that those numbers, like those grains of rice on the chessboard, once they start increasing exponentially, then it's, it very, very rapidly gets out of control. And there's this great quote from Anthony Fauci, who headed up a lot of the US response. He says, What I like to see is when people look at what we're doing and say you're overreacting. If you think you're in line with the outbreak, you're already three weeks behind. So you've got to be almost overreacting a bit to keep up with it. And what we didn't do back in March was overreact. We waited till it was clear that we should be acting. And because of the exponential growth and because you're always behind the curve, that's when you probably tip too far one way. 
So if it's not just increased testing, what do we think is actually happening here? If there was a lag before we picked it up, that means this must have started kicking in in August. I mean, this is too soon for schools to be reopening. Is this people going on holiday? Is it the grand success of the eat out to help out scheme? What would have triggered it? You've mentioned two of the possibilities. There's lots of other possibilities. The most obvious answer and the one that both seems to correlate with what statistics we do have and with what we're seeing in other countries is that young people have got bored and we're seeing a big rise in cases disproportionately amongst younger people. We know from mobility data that people are moving more. Road traffic is almost up to what it was. There are so many different ways in which we're meeting each other. And I think the government has taken the view that maybe their test and trace data is saying this is because of socialisation. But maybe they've also taken the view that we can't close down the restaurants again, we can't close down the schools. So it's the socialisation that that has to give. And, and slightly arbitrarily, they've chosen that as, if not the cause, then at least the solution. Do you think the, the fact that we've got this new rule of six and it's a national rule, does it show that we've slightly lost control of this? We, we can't just cope with local lockdowns to try to isolate little communities. It is turning into a national problem again. It is. It is the, the worry is that it's definitely turning into a national problem and a national problem requires a national solution. Today in France, it's deja vu all over again as new COVID cases surge. Israel is facing a second wave of COVID-19. Spain, France and Belgium have all strengthened local health rules amid fears of a second wave of the virus. So in terms of a second wave, as you said, and you're right, we've sort of been quite lucky in some ways in that we've always been a few weeks behind the rest of the world. So what are we seeing elsewhere? How bad is the second wave? You know, what what happens in the second wave in other countries is, well, none of them want to go back to what happened in spring. And we know what to do. We have a lot more testing. We know far more about what's going on with the virus and we're all behaving differently. So at great cost, they intervene and shut it down. And that, I suspect, is what's going to happen here. We are not the same country that greeted this in February. We're a completely different place. So it's not going to be the same thing. But what we are going to see is that in autumn and winter, cases will go up and then at great cost, cases will go down and we will feel our way to getting through it. But it's, it's, going, to, it's going to be quite depressing. Oh, so much to look forward to. Um, we have so little to compare it to, but, you know, it's often compared to the Spanish flu, for example. And we know that the second wave of the Spanish flu was deadlier than the first. Do we think this is going to be a milder second wave than than the initial attack? Um, so, I mean, yes, there's an element of every virus which is can mutate and the mutations can be bad. It was a particularly unpleasant for humans mutation in this that happened in autumn of last year, which meant that it went from bothering bats to bothering us. There's a general rule of virology that mutations tend not to be bad. The, the virus doesn't want to kill you. It might mutate to transmit more rapidly, but it's unlikely to want to transmit to kill you more because that doesn't remotely benefit the virus. This is different from influenza because there the second wave came because winter came again and because it wasn't really 
traveling in a world that was controlling it terribly well. But also influenza mutates vastly more rapidly than coronavirus. So I would cautiously predict that not much is going to change in that sense. And I don't think we should expect it to be terribly different come this winter. We're far better at behaviourally dealing with it. And we also have some treatments that work. We have remdesivir, which is okay. I mean, it doesn't seem to make people survive terribly better, but it gets people out of hospital faster, which does matter. And we have dexamethasone, which seems to produce a 20 to 30% improvement in survival amongst the most severely affected patients. And hopefully by winter, we might have a couple more as well, or, you know, even and whisper it, a, a vaccine. But I think it's probably unlikely that that'll have a major impact before late winter, certainly. Do we think that the virus has already mutated? Has it become milder or is it just that we're better at coping with it? Because we are seeing fewer deaths now. So the virus has definitely mutated. I think we have a view of mutations that's perhaps coloured by kind of Spider-Man radioactivity or something. I mean, mutations are just a quotidian thing that viruses do. And they've been quite useful for us because they've allowed us to track where different outbreaks have happened and where they've spread to, so you can look at the particular strain. There are some scientists who do think that there's been a mutation that seems to make it spread a bit faster. There hasn't been anything that I've seen convincingly that's changed the severity of the disease. Some have suggested that that's happened, but not with much proof. In terms of why there aren't hospitalizations rising and deaths rising as a consequence of these rising cases, there are a few answers. So one answer is you have to wait a bit. The deaths generally come from infections that happened a month ago. The second answer is, as we said, it's currently transmitting amongst younger people. There's a third answer, which is that quite possibly in the first wave, a lot of the people who are most susceptible and most likely to get severe forms of disease did. And so it's now hitting a more robust population. Um, there's an interesting fourth answer, which is plausible, but I, I don't think there's any definitive evidence for, which is we're getting it less severely because we're getting less of the virus. At the beginning of this, if you caught the virus, you know, you might have caught it, you might have been at a romantic dinner, staring into your partner's eyes and, you know... <laughs> There's it, an insight into the Whipple, <laughs> Whipple well, life. Yeah, and, and sort of less romantically inhaling their saliva uh, and droplets of virus. Uh, or you might have been just next to someone on the tube... Now we're wearing masks, we're not meeting people for the same length of time, we're not greeting people with air kisses and hugs. From that, we're only getting it as glancing blows. If you inhale less virus, if you start off the infection with less virus, then your innate immune system, the bit that kicks in before antibodies, is better able to deal with it and, and, and beat it off. And so maybe we're just getting more asymptomatic infections and less severe infections because of that simple effect. All of this is supposition. I think the least likely explanation is that something fundamental has changed in the virus rather than there's being something fundamentally changed in how we get it and who gets it and how we deal with it. So this autumn, given that we do have rising numbers again, how do you think our behaviour will have to change? I mean, given that there'll be less eating outside because of the weather, do we go out less than we have been? 
I'm afraid so. This is the bit where it's just going to get probably a bit more depressing. We're not going to be able to go into beer gardens and eat outside in restaurants. And all of this will make a difference. So, I don't know, enjoy our September sun now whilst you can. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. developing new types of tests which are simple, quick and scalable. They use swabs or saliva, they can be turned around in 90 minutes or even 20 minutes, the so-called Operation Moonshot, to deploy mass testing. The government have been talking about what's being called Operation Moonshot. We're piloting this approach right now and verifying the new technology, and then it can be rolled out nationwide. And Mr. Speaker, I'm going to depart from my script here because I've heard the naysayers before and I've heard the people on the other side complain we'll never get testing going. And they're the same old voices. The same old voices. Could that be a potential answer? Could that keep us still going out? And how does it work? <laughs> um, I mean, from the beginning, there's been, well, there's been one strand which is just test, test, test. And then there's been... People calling for mass testing, saying the way to return to normality is basically to test all of us all the time. And it's a good idea. The logistics for it are difficult. The technology doesn't exist and the logistics don't exist yet. You'd need a really good test, probably using spit. And it would need to be really good because even if it's 99.2, nine percent accurate when there are low levels of the virus the number of false positives from taking 0.1 percent of the population every week and locking them up unnecessarily are vast the counter argument to that of course is that at the moment with test and trace if you test positive then all of your contacts have to quarantine until you've sorted out the negative tests anyway so there's loads of in that sense people locking up ostensibly unnecessarily, who might then not have to if we're doing massive, massive testing. It'll be the case, and it's always the case at an individual level, you can't be completely sure that a negative means you haven't got it. And so this idea of people with negatives being able to return to society, I think probably won't work. But at a population level, the more you test, the more you know. And so Good luck to it. There's been scientists from the beginning suggesting this as an idea. I'd quite like to see it work in a pilot project in a large urban area first. It 
does seem rather risky if the technology doesn't exist already, but also so everyone would presumably test themselves every day. If you are likely to get false negatives, doesn't that sort of undermine trust in in your being able to go out and carry on as normal anyway? It does. You know, uh, we've been operating in uncertainty throughout this, but there would have to be a very clear messaging about how it would work and what it would mean if you got a negative and what it would mean if you got a positive. But if, if, you know, if we're in a situation where every single week hundreds of thousands of people are being wrongly told that they have coronavirus, which is what even a really, really good test would likely do, then you have to have really good compliance and messaging in the population to explain why it's necessary for them to isolate. We are sort of moving into slightly difficult times in that so much of this comes down to trust too, doesn't it? And if we're all testing ourselves, you have to rely on everyone else testing themselves properly and and being honest about it. And increasingly, you know, you do walk around and see people not wearing masks anymore. So it's hard to know how much people will buy into the system. Yeah, and we just don't know. But, you know, at the beginning of this, back in February, the presumption was that the country, a country like ours, wouldn't lock down and wouldn't comply and compliance was far far higher than anyone had predicted so i I think i think the public can surprise you i mean the the other we're we're constantly told the other way out of all of this is a vaccine how is that looking now the vaccines are progressing as vaccines do we've been following the twists and turns and we were all very worried about the pause in the oxford vaccine but you know this is what vaccine trials are and and always are it's just that until this year we haven't been particularly interested in the minutiae of clinical trials if you vaccinate tens of thousands of people you'll expect some of them to get ill just by chance but sometimes vaccines do cause reactions there are a lot of promising vaccines in late stage trials now I would cautiously say I will be surprised if by January we haven't got one ready to get going. It might not be a perfect protection, but it might help things. And it'll probably, rather than being some magic bullet, it'll bring us a slow and staggered return to normality so that by, God, so that by winter 2022, things are definitely normal. Fingers crossed. (laughs) What are you going to do as soon as it is? What, what do you well, I'm going to have a big party. I want a big party next <laughs> summer and to meet lots of people, have a barbecue. How are you adjusting your behaviour for what's coming? How, how will you be acting this autumn? Are, are you going out much personally? Um, I have three young children. Lockdown's made absolutely <laughs> no difference to my life at all. no i mean i I, i'm not not making plans for christmas and not making plans for the autumn prime minister is christmas now effectively cancelled i'm still hopeful we could be able to get some aspects of our lives back to normal uh by christmas and I, i i talked just now about how you could do that uh through that moonshot We cannot be 100% sure that we can deliver that uh, in in its entirety. Boris Johnson has hinted that Christmas might be off. What do we have to look forward to? How do we we cope with that? I 
guess what we have to look forward to is a Christmas where you don't have to get into a sort of slightly tipsy argument with your drunken uncle who you don't particularly like. We are probably going to be having Christmases with our immediate households, but not with extended family. Who knows, maybe our Moonshot programme will be working by then and it'll be fine, but I would be surprised if we're not still in the rule of six by then and buying lots of smaller turkeys. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Times science editor, Tom Whipple. You can keep up with all of Tom's work with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. The producers were James Shield and Brenna Daldorf. The executive producers this week are Asio Fuchs and James Shield. Sound design was by Falcon Kizzeltuk. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and now we're also on the Times Radio app, along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio in the App Store. See you tomorrow. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.